Luke chapter 15, probably the most well-known and beloved parables of all the parables that Jesus taught. I want to look at, look at it in a little different way perhaps today, but uh, the theme for our church this year, we haven't quite hashed out all the verbiage. Now, we will hopefully get that done on Tuesday, nothing like a last minute, huh? But we all agreed on this, it was all in our hearts, that we discussed something like enduring, something like persevering, something like diligence to the end, something like not growing weary and well-doing, but it'll be a quick, short, pithy uh, saying that we can remember all year long, and uh and so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this Sunday, this first day of the year off with something that is heavy on my heart every day. And we'll call it the PPP sermon. We'll call it persevering in prayer for our prodigals. Easy to understand, hopefully easy to remember. So we're going to look at this uh, One of the things that uh, we have as a heart for our church body, we as elders, uh, we love our church body. I think we demonstrate that on a daily basis. And one of the things we do, and it's our great privilege, it's a great joy for us, and uh, it's a great accountability to us to be imitatable, to do the things we ask you guys to do, we do. And one of the things we do on Tuesdays is we pray for you guys. And uh, some of the cards that you turned in that just got picked up, we pray for those needs. There'll be health needs and there'll be sickness needs and job needs. There are a lot of different needs we have. May You may or may not know, we do have a list, and it's on our second page, and it is a very lengthy list. And it is a list where we pray for our prodigals. We pray for your sons and we pray for your daughters. We pray for your husbands and we pray for your wives. We pray for your grandchildren. And your great-grandchildren, we even pray for some great-great-grandchildren. And uh, it is the desire of our hearts uh, to love our people and to love you well. And and some of our prodigals uh, may be temporarily wayward. Some of our prodigals are lost. Some of our prodigals are in various states of rebellion Uh, Some of our prodigals are angry, antagonistic against us. Some of our prodigals hate Christ, hate us. But we have one thing in common with everyone in here, those of us who have prodigals, is we love them. Okay? And so we love your prodigals. We pray for your prodigals. And uh, we believe as an elder board and we believe as a church, I think we demonstrate this at Grace Bible Church, that uh, uh, we believe in faith that God's arm is not shortened, that he cannot save our prodigals. We believe that uh, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of those who are living wickedly. We believe that he's not willing that any of his elect should perish. Uh, We believe that there's nothing impossible with God. And we understand that God, in His sovereignty, uses as a means, He uses the prayer of His people. And so we believe that, we trust that, we have full assurance of faith in that. We come boldly before the throne of God. 
grabbing hold of the horns of the altar, saying, please, Father, save our children and our loved ones. Scripture tells us that the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people does a whole lot of good. The question is, do you pray fervently? Are your prayers effectual? Are you yourself useful for the Master? Is there sin that's hindering you? So we ask you that. I ask me that. Are my prayers effectual? Are they fervent? And are they doing any good? So I want us to consider these as we look at this. Now this is a very familiar parable. What is a parable? And I, out, of, out of transparency, I don't want to be have to resign in shame for my position as a board member because I'm accused of plagiarism, as that's happened this week, I think. So in transparency, I want to tell you that uh, some of the material that I'm going to be quoting from is from MacArthur's good book, A Tale of Two Sons. Some of you have read it. Also read a podcast, heard a podcast from Edward Lutzer, who is one of my wife's favorite people to listen to. He used to be pastor at Moody Bible in Chicago. Now he's, I believe he is a pastor emeritus, if that's pronounced correctly, I do not know. But he is very wise, and I listen to his podcast. But most of this is intensely autobiographical with me and with you. And so let's look at this. What is a parable? A parable is a story. A parable is a story that Jesus used, uh, maybe a metaphor, maybe a simile. It is foremost, and I'll read this from MacArthur, a comparison that literally speaks of something placed along something else for the purpose of pointing out or making an important association between the two. So we see this as a parable. Now, in parables, it's not an allegory. We don't want to overanalyze a parable. We don't want to be obtuse about it and, and just come across, come up with some answers that are beyond the periphery. We don't want to violate biblical hermeneutics and add to the parable which shouldn't be added to it. We want to use a plain sense of the text. Uh, we don't want to multi-layer it. We don't want to add meaning to it. We want to take it for what it is, a simple comparison told by Christ as a story to point out a very important thought or topic. And so this is what this is. It's a parable. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, unfortunately, he spoke in parables, number one, to fulfill prophecy. He told Isaiah in chapter 6, after he appeared to him in a theophany and Isaiah had to hold it, cover his eyes because he was in the presence of holiness. He had to have the altar from the tongs from the altar to his lips so he could be in the very presence of God. And so he knew he was in a reverential place. And God told him at that time, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, this is why Jesus spoke in parables. It was a judicial hardening of the heart. The people had had fled from him, had abandoned him, and so as a consequence of their sin, as a consequence of their rebellion, Jesus, uh, Isaiah was told this, and Jesus uses this for the reason that he explains it in Matthew chapter 13. So he tells, he uses this very verse from Isaiah chapter 6, Verse 8 through 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. 
send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So Jesus speaks in parables because of a judicial hardening of the people against him. You can look at that when the disciples specifically asked him why he spoke in parables, Matthew thirteen, thirteen through seventeen. He told them this very thing. He used this very same context in Isaiah. So we ask the question, what is the context of this parable? It's critical we understand that this parable is not taken out of orbit, out of space, but it is contextual. There's a purpose in it. And so the purpose of this parable is very easy to see, and it's in Luke 15, and it's found in verse 2. The purpose, why did Jesus tell this parable? He told this parable because the Pharisees and the scribes were murmuring and complaining amongst themselves, and they were very concerned in their legalistic, formalistic outward appearance of righteousness that Jesus would have the audacity to formally intervene and even eat with sinners and tax collectors. And so this is the text, and the Pharisees and scribes complained. That word means they murmured, they were disgusted that Jesus would associate with sinners Because they themselves weren't sinners. They were perfect observers of the law. They were teachers of Israel. And they were high and mighty in their opinion of themselves. So this context of this parable, along with the two that precede it, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, all are in context that Jesus is saying, Yes, I received sinners. I came as the physician to heal the sick. I came to heal those who were lost. I came to seek those lost and to find those lost. And so the context of this parable, Jesus tells them that this is why I'm giving you this story. Now, different from some parables, the Pharisees understood that Jesus was talking about them. And I will get into the story later, but they understood. And Jesus gave them an open invitation to respond to the parables. And they responded yes, and they responded horrifically wrong. That's a word. Sounds good. Horrifically wrong, okay? So who are the characters in this parable? We have three. We have the prodigal. The prodigal represents... Verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus spoke this parable to those who came to him, who knew they needed a Savior, who were lost, who were without hope in this world. Jesus came to the prostitutes. Jesus came to tax collectors who cheated people and stole money and who were covetous and idolatrous in their hearts. He came to all manner of men and women. He came to people that were not Jews, the Samaritan woman. He healed the blind. He caused the sick to be healed. And he came 
to save sinners. So the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal is the tax collectors and the sinners. The prodigal is everyone who has been lost or is lost. So the prodigal was all of us and may still be some of us. Character number one is the prodigal. Number two, we have the father. The father, according to John MacArthur, and I agree with this 1,000%, represents Jesus Christ. When Jesus told this story, he was representing a father who had two sons. One was prodigal and one, the other one was prodigal, both prodigals. Different states, different ways. But Jesus is the father in this story. He is the father who bore the sinner's reproach. He's the one who invited the sinner to come to him. He embraced the sinner and forgave the sinner. He fulfilled John 6.37, which says, The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Character number two, the third character, is the elder son. The elder son, as we will see as we get into this, is the scribes and the Pharisees. The legalistic ones who were so abhorrent to the fact that Jesus would stoop to fellowship with sinners. They were clean. They were on the outside. They were whitewashed tombs. But on the inside, they were full of dead men's bones. The elder son represents the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And we're going to see their broken relationship in a minute as we get into this. So those are the characters in the parables. Those are the main people that we're going to discuss about this. And so let's look at the prodigal. Let's look at the prodigal. We see him in chapter 15, and we see him starting in verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. He divided his livelihood to the son. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And when he had spent all, all there arose a severe famine, and he began to be in want. He went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, And he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he gladly would have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So this prodigal, like I said, represents every sinner who's ever lived on the earth. This prodigal had an irrational rebellion rebellion against a loving father. This radical prodigal had a personal affront against his father. He had a disdain for his father's authority. He denied God, his father, his rightful place. He had a contempt for his father. He dishonored his father. The prodigal was just like us. The prodigal was lost in trespasses and sin. The prodigal... And I think this is very important. The prodigal had no idea how far the sin would take him. 
The prodigal had no idea how much it would cost him. The prodigal had no idea how long he would stay there. And so this prodigal, in an irrational rebellion against the loving father, he wanted out. He cashed in his chips. If you know anything about Jewish customs or laws, when the younger son, who was to receive only a third A small portion of the inheritance, the elder son was to receive double portion. And even when the younger son cashed out, he settled for pennies on a dollar. He sold himself out for an irrational decision to live a selfish, rebellious life. The word prodigal in the Greek means one who lives a debauched lifestyle. His older brother said many things that weren't true. But his older brother and his dad did not rebuke him for saying something incorrect. Correctly said in verse 30. As soon as this son of yours comes who has devoured your livelihood with harlots... So a prodigal, a debauched liver, one of the things he does is live in a moral lifestyle. We agree with this text, what the the elder brother said. He lost everything. He, he, He lost the livelihood. This prodigal denied the faith of the father. He renounced his birthright, so to speak. He, like Esau, fought. He wanted his selfish pleasure and he said enough of this I want to do my way my will and he rejected the authority of his dad and he left the prodigal son many of you in here have prodigal children you have prodigal husbands you have prodigal wives that is a philosophy and a thought. They do not understand the scripture that says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so the prodigal goes according to his flesh and according to his carnal mind. We know the scripture. We know Romans 8, 7 and 8 says the carnal mind is an enemy of God's. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So the prodigal has a mind that is dominated by the flesh, the carnality of the mind. That sinner is dead in trespasses and sin, whether he's wandering or whether he is in uh, it indeed is lost. And so we see that. We see it in the Scripture. We see prodigals. We saw that Adam and Eve became prodigal in their rebellion against God, against His authority. We saw Moses became prodigal for a bit when he rebelled against God. He disobeyed God. He hit the rock the second time instead of speaking to the rock. And he had an arrogance about him when he said, Must we bring water out of this rock? We see David a man after God's own heart go through a time of prodigalness that's a word, sounds good through a time when his life when he rebelled against God he was not satisfied with whom he had as a family he lusted, he saw Bathsheba and he took her he had carnal knowledge of her and they had an illegitimate child he murdered Uriah and he was in denial for a year and thank you God by your grace he was in misery for a year Read Psalm 38. And he came to repentance as God sent Nathan the prophet to him. Remember Jonah. 
Go to Nineveh and preach. No one said, I don't want to go to Nineveh and preach because I hate the Ninevites and I know you're a merciful God and you'll save them and I don't want to go. So he got in the boat and he went the other direction to Joppa. I love the verse when he, God puts him in the belly of a whale. He's submersed and there's a seaweed wrapped around his head. Is he sinking, sinking, sinking? Is he realize the consequences of sin? He says something very important. He says, salvation is of the Lord. And God brought him to his senses at the bottom of the belly of the whale for three days. Then the beautiful verse says, God spoke to Jonah again. God raised the prodigal. We know the great story of Peter, one of my favorite verses. I say that all the time, those of you who know me. As Jesus was praying for Peter, look what he says. They're having an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that something like us? There's an arrogance about us. We want to be great. We want to be well known. And they're arguing about who the greatest one is. And Psalm, look at this, Luke 22, verse 31. This is just so like our Savior. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. What does he say? But I have prayed for you. And when you have what returned, then you're going to strengthen your brothers. God is faithful. Christ is Savior, is an intercessor. He prays for Peter. And so a time of prodigalness, and to add emphasis to that, Jesus comes to him three times and says, Peter, do you love me? What a good God we have. What a good Savior we have. And so we see the prodigal. And we see that we are by nature enemies of God, aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. We are separated from God, but we have a great Savior. Now, let me pull out my hanky, because I may pull a Greg on us and get emotional. You got your hanky, Greg? What I want you to know is you put this in your notes, and this, is, this isn't from any book. Samuel 1, 1 Samuel 12, 20 says, God forbid that I should not sin against God and not pray for my people. And he told them that he is going to teach them the good and the right way. And so uh, if you're in your notes and you write these things down, and some of you do, and you'd fuss at me if I didn't give you notes. So there's your notes. Uh, Sort of do both of these at once. Application to those of us who have prodigals. Number one, we pray for the Lord to change their heart. We cannot compel their obedience. We cannot compel a change of heart. We cannot bring about their conversion in our own strength. It's hard to understand as a dad we want to fix everything. We can't. Uh, We can't bring them to repentance uh, it's like causing the blind to see. It's like causing the deaf to hear. It's like causing the dead to raise from God to raise the... God has to raise the dead. God has to bring about this resurrection. So if you're a parent, if you're a wife, if you're a wife, you love your husband, you live a godly life, and God may use your godliness to bring your husband to faith. If you have lost brothers and sisters, and I know many of you do, we weep with you over them and cry for you over them. But understand, they're lost or they're astray and only God can bring them back. Uh, trust God to bring them back. Pray for God to bring it back. 
Uh, Edwin Lutzer tells this wonderful story. He used to be before he retired. He used to train his uh, missionaries and he used to train his to be pastors. And what he would do is he would teach them uh, how to preach. He would on their first field trip, he would take them to the cemetery. And he would take these pastors and he would say, you preach to that tombstone, you preach to that tombstone. And they thought to themselves, why am I preaching to a tombstone? And Edwin Lutcher says, because that gives you an idea of what I go through every Sunday as he laughs. But he said, it's also a truth that when you try to save your prodigals, it's like preaching to a tombstone. They cannot hear you. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have an ability unless God grants them the ability. They must be given faith by God. They must be regenerated by your spirit, by his spirit. And so Edwin Lutzer would have them preach. And they understood a small bit of what it meant to have a prodigal, what it meant to pray to a church that may be full of prodigals. And the frustration that could cause you if you wasn't aware of their condition and your inability to save them. Everybody understand that? So we pray for God to change their heart. Second thing that we do as we say to ourselves, Lord, they're yours. Lord, they're yours. We may ask ourselves, are they saved? We may ask ourselves, were they ever saved? The truth is, we don't know a heart of a person. We're only very bad fruit inspectors. But let me tell you about this truth. Sometimes our prodigals are unrecognizable in sons and daughters, but they are. We cannot assume they're lost. And we cannot presume they're saved. We can only fruit inspect. And let me tell you about this. Ten years I was unrecognizable as a follower of Christ. I gathered around myself people who were rebellious like I was. And I became a leader of the pact in that regard And I was unrecognizable as a believer. So we cannot say that person is obviously not a believer because how in the world would that person do what he's doing if he was a believer? We are all capable of doing unimaginable things. So we need to understand that we give them to the Lord Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2.9, The Lord knows those who are His. And we trust that. And so as a parent, as a, as, a, as a wife, as a dad, as a son, as a daughter, as a brother, a sister, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, you understand you pray for God to change their heart and you understand, Lord, they're yours. They're yours. Third thing we want to do is we want to say sometimes sin has to run its course. Sometimes sin has to just run its course. If they are God's, God knows they're His. Scripture tells us very clearly of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Scripture tells us very clearly that God knows who His sheep are. Scripture tells us very clearly that 
all the sheep will be saved. And scripture tells us that God himself will find the sheep and he will bring them back to himself. So we trust they're the Lord's. Sin may have to run its course. But let's read this beautiful picture of John. John chapter 10. Jesus speaking under the context of the shepherd knows his sheep. He says this in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me. It's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. They may not look like sheep, but God knows if they're His or not. And He will move heaven and earth. He will put them on His shoulders. He will bandage them. He will take them bloody if He must. He may hit them with His rod and chasten them, but He will do that. He is faithful in doing that. So we understand the truth. There is a great doctrine that we believe in this church. It's the doctrine of the perseverance and preservation of the saints. It says in the Westminster Confession that God, whom God who those whom God, excuse me, has accepted in His beloved, those who have been effectually called and set apart by the Spirit of God can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So we trust God that He knows those who are His. We understand He knows His elect. We do not. And the implication is He will save His people despite themselves. He will bring them. Remember what what it said in the parable? Look what happens, sovereignly happens. He's wasted everything he's got. In verse 14, when he'd spent all, there arose a severe famine. God intervenes. The providence of God works in the life of this prodigal. And there's a severe famine. There are no accidents with God. We're not fatalists here. We don't think that God winds up this planet and then just worries about how it's going to end up. He he allows and He determines and He causes all things. So our prodigals, although He doesn't approve of them, He allows it in them and there's a purpose in them and it's to His glory. And we may not get it on this side of earth or heaven, but He's at work. We trust Him. So this famine comes. And then in verse 17, the purpose of this famine, why God works the way He works, and I could stand up here and declare you the glory of God as He worked in my life, as He brought this stubborn, rebellious, hard-headed, debauched teenager and young person to faith in Him. It's a glorious thing. But He brought that famine in my life. He brought that humbling in my life. And then one day... God's grace said, what are you doing? And so this prodigal, when he came to himself, this prodigal never would have come to himself if God would allow him blessing and and prosperity and all these things that were promised by those out there. 
this trouble came and God had to intervene. God had to send the famine. He had to come to himself. Somebody texted me yesterday morning at six while I was praying. And they said, the prodigal, I like this, the prodigal, when he was hungry, followed after the swine. But when the prodigal was starving, he looked to the father. The father had to bring him to starvation. And so we see this work, this work. Our task is to pray. Our task is to ask and trust God to save. Write these things down. We can ask God to bring trouble on them. That's hard to do. It's biblical to do. And I think you ought to do it now. Ask God to bring trouble on your loved one. Whomever it is. If your loved one is doing well and very successful, he's going to think that he's accomplished all these things and repentance will be the furthest thing from his mind. But if God puts a burden on him, he puts trouble on his soul, he will bring that prodigal, if he's one of his, to repentance. Let me tell you the great story of Johnny Erickson Tata. From a biography she wrote, In the Presence of God, I believe she wrote a preface to it. Everybody knows who she is. She's in her 70s. She's at MacArthur's Church. She's a quadriplegic, godly woman. Listen to her prodigal story. Joni was the youngest of four girls. She grew up in the 50s in a family who loved God. They were Reformed Episcopalians. I didn't know there was anything like that, huh, Keith? She learned many psalms by heart, and she sang with her sisters. She came to Saving Faith at 15 years old at a Young Life evangelism conference. She said the doctrines of heaven and hell, forgiveness, grace, justification, sanctification, took roots quickly. Her life verse was Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ and... Therefore, I no longer live, but the life that I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Fifteen-year-old girl, saved by grace, the seeds planted in her life, but the seeds perhaps on shallow ground. So she, in the 60s, now she's 16 years old, 15 years old. Listen to what it says. The late 60s issued the sexual revolution, and Joni fell under the influence of that revolution. Listen to these things, and these are so things about your prodigal. Be sympathetic to your prodigal. I hope you're not empathetic. That means you've done the same thing, but I can tell you by experience that these are truths. Listen to this. This is what you have gone through. This is what your prodigal is going through. If he, She lapsed into moral failures that became habitual. Drug her downward into deep spiritual depression. She longed to follow Christ, but with each sinful, irresponsible choice, she found herself enslaved. That's what sin does. It promises you pleasure. It promises you freedom. It promises you popularity. It promises you this and it promises you that. It's all a great big lie. 
from the father of lies. She bit into the lies. She took it sinker, hook, line, and sinker. And guess what? It enslaved her. Joni wanted to repent, but lost her ability to resist temptation. That's what happens. It crushed her to realize she was a hypocrite, confessing Jesus in the light, but denying him in the dark. Weeks before graduation, before she went to college, she knew her lifestyle would get worse. Isn't that the grace of God? She prayed, pleading with God to do whatever, absolutely anything to rescue her from her lustful enslavement. Not a week later, swimming in a lake, diving into a lake, she hit her head, broke her neck, and she's a quadriplegic. God answered her prayer. He did that because he loved her. And he rescued her from her slavery to sin. He can do that for your prodigal. He can do that for you. There are several people in here whom God has miraculously intervened in their life. And God, by your own mouth, has rescued you from sin. And there are at least two in here. There are more than that in here. Who've suffered grievous physical alterations because of your sin. And you testify that it was God's mercy that did it. Okay? God is able to restore a prodigal. He will do that. Our task is to ask God to bring trouble on them. We ask God to take it their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36 26 through 29. We ask God to unmask their deceived eyes. Scripture tells us that the God of this age has blinded their eyes who don't believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The devil has blinded their eyes and they are deceived. We ask God to make them disgusted with the pig slop. That prodigal never would have dreamt he would have defied his religious faith and eaten with swine who were an abominable creature to them. And not only does he care for them, he eats their food. That's how far sin will take you. And so we ask graciously for our Father and through His Son and through His Spirit to give our prodigals a distaste for the pig slop. Once you're in the lifestyle of that, you don't even know you're eating pig slop. You think it's good. You think it's okay. You think it's natural. God has to give you that. And He will. We pray that He will. And so this prodigal came to his senses by God's grace. And he thought to himself... Man, if I was a slave in my father's house, I would have a lot better off than I do now. And that's God's grace and mercy. And that's what we pray for, for our children, our wives, our husbands, our dads, our brothers, our sisters. We have a heart for them, okay? Last thing I want to say on this. I've got a few minutes. We want to welcome them home. 
We want to welcome them home. There's a great battle in my family in this regard. I have some great loving family. Well, I wouldn't say loving. We have some family members that are very, very on this side of the spectrum. You be hard on them. You show them tough love. You show them that you don't support that lifestyle. And you ignore them. Remember the fiddler on the roof? Tavier has three daughters. The first daughter wants to get married. He's a poor guy. And he says, tradition, tradition. And he's fighting his conscience about the Jewish faith. And he talks to himself on one hand. And then he talks about on the other hand, he loves her. And so he allows his eldest daughter to marry the tailor. The second one, a little different. The third one, she wants to marry a Gentile, one outside the faith. And he's talking to himself on the one hand. And then he says, on the other hand, then he says, there is no other hand. There is no option. And so he says, no, I will not allow you to marry this Gentile. And what he did was horrific. He turned his back on her and he said, you're dead to me and I'm never going to speak to you again. We get a little hint at the end when he's talking through his wife. He says, God bless you. But a sad story of going too far in your desire to show a faithfulness to God and an, and, a, and, and, a, and an unwillingness to compromise. But I say to you, don't close your door on their face. They're a the prodigal. I say to you, love covers a multitude of evil. I say to you that we must attempt to communicate with them. Let me say something here. They will and they might reject you. When you try to communicate to them, this is very painful, isn't it? I got a lot of people that know going through the same thing. We may be tempted to give up on them. We may be tempted to be angry at them. In our foolish pride, we may think to ourselves, and we would never admit it to anybody, how dare them make me look like a bad parent. They've disgraced us. They've caused us to look like... We may be tempted to be envious of other people who have good kids. Uh, We may become depressed in our false guilt. And we may blame ourselves for what our kids have done. This is the methodology of the devil. This is the methodology and the scheme of the devil. He wants not only to ruin our prodigal's life, but he wants to ruin our whole family. If he could, he would destroy Pastor Terry and Pastor Keith and mine and Lee's and Keith's and Greg's and Dave Brown's life. He wants to do that not only because he hates us, Because he wants to destroy everything that this church is about for 40 years. He's working in our elders' lives to destroy them now. Okay? That's who he is. He's insidious. 
He's demonic. He's the devil. He wants to destroy our whole family. He wants us to feel useless. He wants us to feel unworthy. He wants us to feel ineligible to serve in God's kingdom. He wants us to stew and waller. And he wants us to believe we're a bunch of hypocrites. And we don't have any right to teach anybody else. That's what he wants to do to us through our prodigals. If you don't believe that, I hope you never find that out. Excuse me. We must not be self-absorbed when it comes to our prodigals. It's not about us. It's about their souls. Now, all of this about the prodigal, all of this that I'm putting in your mind, all these things you're remembering about the person in your life, we do this because of the second character, and that character is Jesus Christ. When the prodigal was doing his thing, sinning against his father, sinning against the family, doing what he was doing, there was a father, Jesus Christ, who was looking for him. Verse 20 tells us, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. How come he saw him? Because he was looking for him. So we have Jesus Christ who is seeking to save those who are lost who is looking to save a sinner, who is looking to bring his sheep back into the sheepfold, who is looking to restore the lost coin that was lost to bring joy to the very angels of heaven. And Jesus Christ is looking for you if you are a lost prodigal, if you are one of his. And so he looks, he sees him from afar off. He's looking for him. Christ intercedes for his people. In the greatest text in Scripture... In my humble opinion, John chapter 17, when we see Jesus praying for his people, Jesus prays for his people, and all of his people are always cared for when he prays for them, and all of his prayers are answered toward all of his people. Understand that. There is no possibility that not one of Christ's prayers will not be answered. He prays for his people in in, uh, 17, chapter 17 of John, verse 20. I don't pray for these alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me. And I knew that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that those whom you've given me will be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory that you've given me. Those you've given me before the foundation of the world will come. And so Jesus, our intercessor, prays. For time restraint, I'll let you read Hebrews 7, 25 through 28. I'll let you read about the one who intercedes for us continually and forever. I'll let you read about our sins being covered and forgiven in Hebrews 8, 12. I'll let you read Hebrews 9, 14 by 25 about Christ who loves to save sinners, who looks for them and sees them when they are far off and lovingly brings them to himself. This father also had compassion on the son and the father ran to the son. MacArthur tells us, if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, it was a very undignified response for a 
for a landowner, a wealthy parent to run. It was considered an undignified thing. They didn't run. They sauntered. And they moved slowly. This is a beautiful, perfect picture from MacArthur of Jesus Christ who humbled himself. He despised the shame. This is what he says. He didn't want his son to be humiliated by walking through the village. He lived on the outskirts of town in a plantation. The son would have to go through the village to get to where his dad was. He ran to the son so that the son hadn't be further humiliated by the gossip of the townspeople. And he ran to him. He met him. And he showed everyone he was willing to forgive. And he was joyful in doing it. That's the son. That's Christ. Restoring a prodigal to himself. He restored his position. He gave him sandals, which were a gift of sonship. Symbolic of a father's acceptance of the son. He gave him a robe, which was in the Greek a very uh, a ranking garment. Reminds us of the coat of many colors that Jacob gave Joseph. It was representative, a special occasion. It was a robe to to cover the sun it reminds me of the righteousness of Christ and he and he gathers us and he gives us a robe of righteousness and so this willing Christ this father in the story welcomes his son he doesn't even let him finish his rehearsed pitch on forgiveness and not being worthy. And he says, I'll just be a slave. And he wouldn't hear of it. He says, and he gives him a ring. That's a signet ring. That's an authority. That's a picture of restoration. That's a picture of sonship with all the rights and privileges of a sonship restored to the prodigal. And he threw him a party. Don't be like the third Son, don't be like the elder prodigal. The elder prodigal, he didn't have a relationship with the father either. Just because he didn't run off and show himself to be prodigal doesn't mean he wasn't prodigal. He lived with his dad, and he was very legalistic, and he was very outwardly conformative to his father. And everybody would say him, what a dutiful, wonderful son. Oh, I wish I had a son like that. But this son was as far away from that father as the prodigal was. Because of what he said, he said this. He said, and I will do you give you a Reader's Digest version He didn't have a relationship with the Father. He didn't share the joy of forgiveness. He was selfish, and he thought he was sinless, he said. It was an outward outward facade. He was horrified that his dad forgave his son, which is typified in how the Pharisees were horrified that Christ would associate with sinners and tax collectors. This is what they were. This is what they pointed to. He said, this is your son. He didn't say it was his brother. He was indignant that the father shamed himself and ran and made a spectacle of himself in front of all those people. So he didn't have a heart for his dad either. And Jesus, as he closes this parable, says this in verse 32. He says, it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, the first prodigal, 
the story ends. There's a there's an ending to the story. There's a repentance and forgiveness. This second son, it's an open ended. The, the father says to the to the third to the prodigal, which represented the Pharisees, he says, "You ought to have been glad because your brother is dead. He was lost and is found." And it doesn't end the story. And so this is a teaching moment. How does the story end? How would we like it to end? That the prodigal would come to faith too? That the prodigal would say, you're right, he's my brother. Welcome home, brother. He didn't. How does the story end? The Pharisees called Jesus the devil. And they killed him. That's how the story ends. Amazing difference between the two prodigals. One came back to faith and one went further and further away into sin. I couldn't end this without telling this story. This is Erwin Lutzer's story. Again, from his podcast. 1,600 years ago, there was a woman by the name of Monica. And she was married to an unbelieving husband and she had three children, boys. We don't know why she married an unbeliever. She was a deep woman of faith. And at that time, 1,600 years ago, the predominant and pretty much only faith was a Catholic faith. And she prayed. It was well known that she prayed for her sons. And she had a bishop at that time who came to her and told her this. He told her, uh, he said, Woman, he said, it's not possible that a son of so many tears will perish. Your son will be saved. Now, he probably shouldn't have told her that. That sounded good. He didn't know that for sure, but he told her that. That a woman of many tears, that your son would be saved. And guess what? After she had passed, her son was saved. Her son's name was Augustine. And Augustine was a forerunner to the reformers, as I call him. And God used him in a mighty way. In his book, The Confessions, he had a series of books. He wrote in that book, The Confessions, he said, My mother watered the earth with tears, and he credited his mother's prayers and fervency for her, him to bring him to faith. And so, as a conclusion to this, as an action point for this, there's no point listening to this if there's no call to action. Uh, let me suggest these things. You may be a journal person, you may not. Write down your prayers for your loved ones. Write down that you're praying for whomever it is. And write down what you're praying for them. They may be an alcoholic. They may be a drug user. They may be sexually active. They may be sexually immature, immoral. They may be doing various sundry things, but they're prodigal. You write down in your journal what you're praying for them for. It may be that they never, you never see them come to faith. But it may be that after you're dead, they would read your love for them. They would read what you're praying for them. And God may use that to bring them to faith. Erwin Lutcher tells the last story. His grandmother died when she was 103 years old. And his grandmother had multiple children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And he asked his grandmother one time, Do you know the names of all your grandchildren and great-grandchildren? She pulled out a form. She said, I pray for 121 of them during the week, every day. So, yes, I do know them by name. And once you pray for people, you know their names. 
And they're etched on your soul and in your mind. And you pray for them. And Lutzer says, I credit her for praying for me for all those years. And you may not see the result of it. But we pray for them. Another thing I would suggest, and I'm in process of doing, I've written it in my mind, but I have not written it on paper. Write a letter to your prodigal and tell them, if you read this letter, I'm in the presence of God. I've either died or I've been raptured. And if you've been raptured, you tell them what it's like in glory. You tell them what it's like to be in the presence of God. And you tell them what they're fixing to go through. Is that a good Texas word? You tell them what they're fixing to go through. You tell them what they need to be aware of. You tell them not to do this. You tell them not to do that. You tell them that the gospel is going to be preached by the angels. You tell them that the evangelists are going to... You tell them they're going to suffer much. But you tell them there's hope. And you tell them to place their faith in Christ. Because you tell them that your dad is in glory. Your dad wants to see you. Another suggestion. Another thing that I am convicted about, and I think we do a great job, let's focus on praying for our prodigals in our home groups. We pray for a thousand different things. We pray for healing, very appropriate. We pray for this, we pray for that, we pray for this, we pray for that. Let's focus on praying for our lost people. In my home group, we've been together with the first ones. We've been together almost 10 years, and I have prayed for my prodigals in my home group 3,000 times or more. And guess what? I'm going to do it again tomorrow. We pray for our prodigals. Emphasize that within your home groups. Do not be embarrassed to share the prayer needs because your prayer needs are their prayer needs. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed to glorify God in praying for your prodigals. We need to believe God and trust Him. We need to believe God and trust Him. Never stop praying. Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. Andrew Murray in his great book that we've done in our group, Christ in the School of Prayer, with Christ in the School of Prayer, he says this, if you quit praying for your prodigal, you are content with their condition. If you quit praying for your prodigal, you're content with their condition. So I ask you, if you stop praying for your prodigal, are you content with where they are now? You would tell me, of course not. Then I tell you, keep praying for them. Keep believing. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep keep approaching that throne room of grace with, with assurance and confidence. Okay? I've heard some people say this, and I'm going to lovingly scold you as an elder. I've heard people say, talking about their... I guess that's the last thing I got to do. That's the only thing I can do, pray for my prodigals. It's not the only thing you can do. It's the best thing you can do. It's not a frustration thing. It's not a last resort thing. It's not a whoa, whoa, pitiful me. I guess I'm going to have to call on the Lord about it. Do that first and do that willfully and do that prayerfully and do that in faith. Okay? It's not a final resort. It's the best resort. One more, one more thought. It's time, I know. God's silence does not mean He's indifferent. God's silence does not mean He's indifferent. 
We're to pray without ceasing and everything by prayer and petition. Thanksgiving, we're to present our request to God. We're to keep on praying, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. We're to pray fervently. It'll be effectual, we trust. And we need to pray in faith and confidence because it does much good. So my hope for you is that you would love your prodigal, pray for your prodigal, trust Christ with your prodigal. Seeing this story of the prodigal, understand the willingness of the Son to save your prodigal. And I pray that you would be hopeful this year and persistent this year in praying for your prodigal. Let's pray.